open up your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians 15. And as you are doing so, if you are able to stand, please do so for the reading of God's holy word. It wouldn't be Easter without us looking at 1 Corinthians 15, sort of the quintessential passage in all of the scriptures on not just Christ's resurrection, but the resurrection that he promises to all his people. And so we turn there this morning. I'm going to read in your hearing 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4, and then we're going to fast forward and pick up verses 20 and 21 and 22. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then if you would fast forward to verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And thus ends this reading of God's holy inspired, and an errant word. Please, brothers and sisters, find your seats. I'm sure it will come as no shock to you, but you and I live in a day and age of confusion and misinformation. Uh, dare I say, uh, we live in a world of fake news. And this is true not just in the political arena, but unfortunately, its tentacles have, have sort of reached into almost every facet of society. We see this, for example, not just in institutions of higher learning or in the government, but unfortunately, we see it even in the life of the church. As an example, I would just have you consider today, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, truth is, even in churches and among Christians, there is much confusion about what today is all about. For example, some are persuaded that today is about becoming a better you. So there are no doubt those who have come to worship all across our land, perhaps even here, and they hope to gain a, a few practical tips so that they can become a better version of themselves tomorrow. Or, similarly, you might think of today as something of a spiritual pick-me-up. You haven't been to church for a while. You know you should be, so you figure Easter is a really good opportunity to come back. I come, I want to get my Jesus juice, right? I want to I get my spiritual high to sustain me for the day, the week, the month, the year. Or, maybe you view today as an opportunity for a second chance. You know, something of a, of a do-over. You know that you've made a whole mess of things, but you are convinced that if God would just sort of wipe the slate clean and give you another shot, you're pretty sure that you can do better next time. 
But brothers and sisters, none of this really has anything to do with Easter. And that's because none of this really has anything to do with Christ's resurrection. You see, what the church has acknowledged since that very first Sunday, the very reason that you and I continue to gather for some 2,000 years on Sunday, is not owing to convenience. It's not even owing necessarily to tradition. The reason that we gather on Easter and every Sunday is we do so in light of an empty tomb. We do so as sinners who stand in need of grace. And we do so recognizing that there is grace found in only one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He who has overcome the grave on our behalf and promised us in this life, spiritual life, and in the life to come, physical life. Anything more or less is fake news. So with all this swirling around in your minds, the confusion regarding Easter, the the muddled ideas that people have about the gospel of Jesus Christ, what I want to do this morning in a lot of ways is just go back to the basics. I, I want us to get in our heads and feel in our hearts what the gospel actually is. And this gospel needs to be heard and loved and believed and proclaimed and guarded. And so with Easter upon us, here are four essential truths about the gospel. Number one, the gospel is God's message. Let me say that again. The gospel is God's message. And that means that it comes from God. God is the origin, if you will. The gospel is not something that we find digging up somewhere in the dirt. The gospel isn't something that we find staring up at the stars. The gospel isn't something that we find rooting around in our hearts. No, the gospel is something that comes from outside of us. In fact, in a lot of ways, the gospel comes from outside of this world. Verse 3 presses this truth upon us. The Apostle Paul writes to the church, For I delivered to you as of first importance. And then he goes on to explicate the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. Now, forgive me, but we do have to pause for a brief moment because we have to say something about that phrase that the gospel is of first importance. That is to say, the gospel is literally the best and most important reality that we can ever hear, understand, believe, or share. And this is important to emphasize because in our current cultural moment, our society is gripped by something of an egalitarian spirit, one that seeks to flatten out everything and make everything the same. But Scripture will not allow us that luxury. There is built into our world a hierarchy, an order. And that is nowhere more true than when it comes to the gospel. So it's altogether possible that you, my friend, might be able to name all the books of the Bible. Maybe you've even read the Bible cover to cover. That's great. It really is. You might be one of those that that has a Bible with passages underlined and and little notes, and and you've even committed some Scripture to memory. You've been to Sunday school and vacation Bible school and Awana, and you've got all the ribbons to prove it. That's great. But if you do not know the gospel, you have missed everything. You've missed it. 
Because the gospel is, verse 3, of first importance. So this morning, and by that I mean Easter morning, Christ's resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, Christ himself. Christ is the gospel. And this is not something you and I can afford to simply pass over. And that is because it is, again, of first importance. So the calling upon you and I is for you and I to spend our life learning the gospel and knowing the gospel and loving the gospel and embracing the gospel and praying the gospel and singing the gospel and sharing the gospel. The well that is the gospel is infinitely deep and the water that we drink from it is the water of eternal life. You've no doubt heard the phrase, a, 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 a jack of all trades, master of none. We do not want to be those when it comes to the gospel. We want to be those who master the gospel, and even more than that, we want to be those who are ourselves mastered by the gospel. To miss the gospel is to miss God. And to miss God is to miss everything. So that brief tangent, return again to verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, Jesus, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Notice the gospel message is something that Paul received. Paul did not invent the gospel. He didn't come up with it. Instead, the gospel is a message that was passed on to him, and what he did with it was simply pass it on to others. So that raises the question, well, if the gospel did not originate with Paul, then where did it come from? And the end of verse 3 answers, in accordance with the Scriptures. The end of verse 4, as you see, echoes in accordance with the Scriptures. So please hear this. When it comes to the Gospel, and by that, the Scriptures are very clear, the Gospel is Christ dying for our sins and Christ rising from the dead. That Gospel, it was all in accord with the Scriptures. Which, brothers and sisters, is really just another way of saying that it came from God. The Gospel is God's message. God thought it up. God revealed it. God implemented it. The whole thing, it all comes from God. This leads us to a second reality about the truth of the gospel, and that is this. It revolves around Christ. Or maybe another way to say it would be this. The gospel from beginning to end is about God's Son. And we see this by putting our eyes again on verses 3 and 4. This message of first importance, the message that Paul received, what was it about? Middle of verse 3, that Christ died for our sins. Verse 4, that He, Christ, was buried. Middle of verse 4, that, <clears throat> that He, Christ, was raised on the third day. You see, it's all about Christ. Christ is the Son that everything in the solar system orbits. And that is nowhere more true than when it comes to the very heart of the gospel. When it comes to the heart of the gospel, three realities are highlighted here. The first is that Christ died. Christ died. 
This is brought out in two ways. For starters, verse 3 tells us very plainly that Christ died for our sins. If that wasn't enough, then at the beginning of verse 4, we read that Christ was buried. That is to say, he really did die. What was laid in that tomb on Good Friday was, in fact, a lifeless corpse. Christ was dead. Why is this so important, you ask? Or to use the language of verse 3, why is this of first importance? Well, that brings us to our second reality that's highlighted. Christ died, verse 3, for our sins. So, So Christ went to the cross and he died there. He spilled his blood, but he did so not for himself, but he did so for our sins. And of course, you know what this presupposes, don't you? Well, that you have sinned, right? So if you and I haven't sinned, then Christ didn't need to die for our sins. But because Christ did die for our sins, that means that you and I are, in fact, sinners. And again, we're sort of in a cultural moment where this really needs to be grasped. Contrary to popular opinion, we are not perfect people. We are not moral people. Brothers and sisters, we are not even good people. In God's sight, in and of ourselves, you and I are sinners. And anyone, anyone who tells you anything different is peddling poison. It's poison for your soul. Now, intimately related to this is that not only are we sinners because Christ died for our sins, but also our sin breaches our relationship with God. Or we say, sin has real consequences. And biblically, those consequences are horrifyingly unpopular words that we just sort of no longer mention today and pretend aren't in the Bible. Words like judgment, words like wrath, words like hell, words like alienation. Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Uh, For their sin, they were banished from the presence of God. Well, brothers and sisters, our sin does the same thing. Because of our rebellion to God, we are all, each and every one of us, we are all ripe for judgment. We deserve nothing less. And if God withholds His grace in Christ from us, we have to know that we will get nothing less. I should add that this is really what hell is. For all of the sort of pop culture references of hell and all our theology that we get from Farside Comics, what hell is, is the just and righteous outpouring of God's wrath upon sinful humanity. It's what we deserve. Well, then what's the good news here? Well, the good news is verse 3, that Christ died For our sins, meaning that Christ actually paid the penalty that we owed, right? So so our sin, we've already established because God is holy and God is righteous and God is just. What our sin provokes is God's judgment and wrath. It, It can't not. But what Christ has done is he has taken our place. 
so that on that bloody cross, He bore in His own body the judgment that sinners deserve. He, he took upon Himself the wrath of God that should have been unleashed upon sinners like you and I. It, it might help, maybe, to think of it in something of economic or financial terms. It's as if you and I have robbed God of $10 million. And God is outraged at our thievery. And He has told us that we have until lunch to pay Him back in full with interest or else. Well, who has that kind of coin just lying around? Who's going to write that check? Well, brothers and sisters, Christ has come. And what Christ does upon that cross is He writes that check for us. This all gets us to that third reality that's highlighted here, and that's found in verse 4. Christ was raised on the third day. This is massive, church. Christ did not stay dead. As the power of God coursed through His veins, and as he emerged from that tomb on Sunday morning, Christ does so making an announcement. In fact, more than an announcement. It's, it's a declaration. And the declaration is not just, hey, I'm alive. But the declaration is, the payment that I made for sin has been accepted. So that in a lot of ways, Christ's resurrection, his, his triumphing over the grave, it becomes something of the capstone, not just of his ministry, beloved, but of the entirety of the gospel. Because as Christ walks out of that tomb, not as a victim, but as the victor, what it clearly reveals, what it puts on display, what it magnifies, is Christ's deity, his trustworthiness, his power, His love, His efficacy. On that resurrection morning, Christ exited the tomb. He hung a vacant sign above it. And in doing so, He conquered sin, He killed death, and He crushed the skull of Satan. So, so zoom out. When the Scriptures, when I, when we, when Christians speak about the Gospel being all about Christ, that is exactly what we mean. It's all about Christ. Who He is and what He has done. But, and this is critical, brothers and sisters, for the sake of our hearts, to, to hear and see and believe. While the gospel revolves around Christ, it also comes to affect us, doesn't it? Or if I can say it just a little bit differently, the gospel makes promises. And that's really the third truth to highlight about Easter morning. The gospel makes grand and glorious promises. To see and savor just a hint of those promises, return now to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. We hear these words. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. So catch this. The gospel is the means by which you and I are being saved. 
right? So, so salvation, and, and by that, the Scripture means this. The Scripture means the forgiveness of sins, the very imputation of Christ's righteousness to you and I, the promise of the Holy Spirit's presence and comfort and guidance, the assurance that we have of an inheritance, one that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. A new heart, a new life, a new future. Power over sin, resurrection glory. That's all. You go back to, to first Corinthians. Being saved, all of that, all of that salvation, it comes to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that last part, speaking of resurrection glory, it gets fleshed out down in verse 20. We're told, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, real quick, I just got to offer two clarifying comments. First, when it comes to that language of first fruits, the Apostle Paul is, in, is employing a very common agricultural metaphor. At least it was common uh, to those in his time. The first fruits in the ancient world were the crops that would be the first sort of fruit to come forth from the field that you had planted. And those first crops, what they would indicate what they would promise, what they would point forward to is that there's going to be a whole field of these in the not-too-distant future. The other clarifying comment has to do with that phrase, fallen asleep. That is a common euphemism throughout the Scriptures referring to those who have died. So Paul's point then is this. Christ was the first to be raised. And eventually, all of the church will also be raised. He, he was the first little green sprout to come out of that dark field. But that means there's going to be many, many more green sprouts to come. And Christ's resurrection, again, it is the guarantee, the assurance of your future resurrection. Continuing this theme from life to death, verse 21 elaborates, For as by a man, it's Adam, for as by a man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Brothers and sisters, do you hear the glorious promise? The reason it is such a glorious promise is because this promise touches upon our greatest enemy, our greatest fear, the one that none of us ever want to talk about, and that is death. I hate to be that guy, but the cold, hard truth is this. Everything and everyone that you have ever known and loved is going to die. In a hundred years or less, the same will be true of each and every one of us. We came forth from dust, and you'd better believe that we will all return to dust. But the message of Easter is this. Christian, take heart. You will 
will not stay dead. This is the heart of Easter. Christ's resurrection is the promise of your resurrection. You can be just assured that you will overcome the grave as you are sure that Christ has already overcome the grave. Yes, it's true. Adam brought death to our race. But Christ has brought life to us. Yes, you have sinned. Yes, you deserve death for your sin. There's no doubt about that. But, verse 3, Christ died for your sins. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, so you too will be raised from the dead. Meaning that in a lot of ways, the promise of Easter, the message of Easter is this, death will not have the last word. Death did not have the last word over the Lord Jesus Christ, and neither will death have the last word over you and I. Life will win. Death and decay will not ultimately triumph. Instead, resurrection and glory and life will be victorious. Now, brothers and sisters, with that glorious gospel promise ringing in your ears, I must still mention a fourth and final truth to be highlighted. The gospel must be believed Return once again to the beginning of of 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to how Paul instructs the church. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You hear the language, the language of received, the language of stand, the language of believed. The gospel is a message that must be believed. You are to receive it by faith, stand on it by faith, and hold fast to it by faith. The gospel is a great anchor for our souls. But brothers and sisters, that anchor will not hold if it is not attached to the boat. If you throw the anchor overboard and one end is not attached to the boat, you're just littering. The gospel does you no good if you do not believe it. If you are not clinging to Christ, if you are not trusting in Christ, if you are not holding on to Christ, then you have no life. Now given what I said earlier about the basics and returning to them this Easter I want to conclude by spending just a few minutes striving to show what the gospel is not. I repeat, what it is not. And I'm hoping that we can compare sort of truth next to counterfeit. And by doing so, perhaps the Spirit will see fit to enrich our souls and stir our affections and renew our hearts. So as we've already said, the gospel is God's message, which means, here's the counterfeit, it is not your message. We don't invent the gospel. The gospel comes to us. It doesn't come from us. God is the author. We are merely the recipients. Which means that you and I must tread very carefully that we do not tamper with God's gospel. 
that we do not say more or less than God's gospel, that we do not dilute God's gospel, because if we dilute it, we run the risk of destroying it. So be on guard, church. Mark and avoid those who would alter the gospel, who would sand down the rough edges of the gospel, who would seek to make the gospel more palatable to our fallen age. Maybe another way to go after it would be this, and this is actually an exhortation to you. The gospel is revealed to us in Scripture, which means this Easter we must confess To have a high view of God and his gospel necessitates a high view of Scripture. Or to say it negatively, those who treat God's word casually or indifferently will, by necessity, have a low view of God and a low view of his gospel. They stand and fall together. To redeeming grace, seek to cultivate a love and respect and adoration for God's holy word. Still thinking about what the gospel is not, the gospel revolves around Christ, which means it doesn't revolve around us. The gospel is not about you. Now, granted, this is hard for many evangelicals. We have grown up on this steady diet that it's all about me. God exists, we think, for us. Right? The gospel is about you and me, and why wouldn't it be? We are just very special and wonderful people. To steal a line from Jerry Maguire, we imagine that God looks at us and says, you complete me. But Christian, you don't complete God. Was God incomplete before you showed up? The Reformed Baptist A.W. Pink has eloquently put it this way. God is solitary in his majesty, unique in his excellency, and peerless in his perfections. He sustains all, but is himself independent of all. He gives to all, but is enriched by none. That includes you and I. Which is another way of saying that God is infinitely perfect and joyfully satisfied in himself. God, I'm sorry, did not wake up missing you. God had gotten along for all of eternity without you, and I assure you, He can get along for all of eternity going forward without you. Now, don't misunderstand me. Do we benefit from the gospel? Of course. Are we on the receiving end of a million graces and blessings that we don't deserve? Of course. That's not the point. Does the cup cup of God's love and mercy spill over onto our laps? every drop. But don't make the mistake of thinking that the gospel is about you. It's not. The gospel is about God. It's about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and God's desire to exalt Himself by His sovereign saving of sinful creatures. We would do well to remind ourselves that we exist for God. We have breath in our lungs for God. You woke up this morning for God. You will be sustained this day if you are for God. If you have been redeemed by Christ's blood, it's for God. 
And if you are left in your sin and God chooses to pass over you and leave you in that sin and expose you to judgment, that too is for God. Let's be abundantly clear. Whether we're talking about judgment or salvation, damnation or redemption, everything and everyone exists for God. Which means that the gospel reveals that God is big and we are small. God is glorious and we are sinners. God is magnificent and we are worms. Now we also, with the aid of the Spirit, must come to see that the gospel makes promises, not demands. The gospel announces done, not do. Let me flesh this out, because this is a cancer eating at our spiritual cells. Church, you and I are hardwired. It's in our DNA. It has come down to us from our first parents. We are hardwired to make the gospel something that is about us, which it's not. And if that wasn't bad enough, we continue to twist it and invert it. So we make the gospel something for us to do, which it's not. The gospel makes promises, not demands. The gospel calls us to rest in Christ, not to perform for him. And if you doubt that this is a spiritual cancer eating at us, consider this. So many hear from Scripture, Christ died for our sins. And we immediately think, well, Christ has come to give us a new law, the law of love, that we might merit eternal life. We hear preached Christ was raised from the dead on behalf of sinners. And we think, you know, if I could just try much harder tomorrow and do better, I bet God would really be pleased with me. The gospel proclaims, in Adam you die, but in Christ you live. And we think to ourselves, I hope that next sermon series gives me 10 steps so I can make sure that I really go to heaven. Christ says from the cross, it is finished. And we interpret that as time for me to get started. The gospel announces you are redeemed by grace and grace alone. But we argue, well, I don't think I deserve it. Yeah, you don't. You see, we so often zig when we're supposed to zag. God makes promises, and we, because we are proud and sinful creatures, we turn those promises into performance. God says, believe, and we think he says, behave. God wants our trust, but rather than give him that, we are more than eager to hop on the treadmill. The gospel calls us to rest in Christ. But rather than rest, we would rather run. So the nail that I want to drive deep into our souls this Easter morning is this. The gospel makes promises, not demands. And this is not something inconsequential. This is really the vital difference found throughout Scripture between works and faith, between law and gospel, between Rome and Protestants. Really, church, it's the difference between, on the one side, works and worry, and then, on the other side, gospel and grace. 
the law will relentlessly bark at you, do this and live. But the gospel announces, I have done this so you would live. Weak, struggling Christian, you who doubt assurance, this is what makes the gospel not just news, but good news. The good news is, is that Christ has done for you what you could never do for yourself. Dane Ortland, a Presbyterian minister, put it this way, Christ was sent not to mend wounded people or wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people or educate ignorant people but to raise dead people. That is why Christ has come. This is why Christ is not just ruler and not just redeemer but also resurrector. This is what Christ has come to do. So, again, I would, I would plead with you to lend me your ear and, and your heart. The gospel is not, I repeat, not do your best. The gospel is not start over. The gospel is not work really hard. The gospel is not be religious. The gospel is not be moral. The gospel is not be Republican. It's not any of that. The gospel is Christ doing for you what you could never do for yourselves. It is Christ who forgives sin. It is Christ who grants spiritual life. It is Christ who pardons and gives peace. It is Christ who robes you with His purity and His righteousness, not your own. It is Christ who makes you new. It is Christ who promises you a new heaven and a new earth. It is Christ who rose from the dead. And it is Christ who has promised that where He is today, so you will be with Him one day. And it is Christ who has said that all of this, every syllable of good news comes to you by grace alone, through faith alone. That's a promise. It's not a demand. Finally, here is the last what the gospel is not. The gospel must be believed, not merely entertained or contemplated or considered. I'm just going to give you both barrels. You cannot afford to stiff arm the gospel. You can't be one who pushes it off. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. You must embrace the gospel. And make no mistake, God commands you to do just that. To return to the language of verses 1 and 2, you are to receive the gospel, stand on the gospel, and hold fast to the gospel. And until, my friend, the gospel is believed and embraced by you personally, the gospel does you no good. Think of it this way. Let's say that you were bit by a poisonous snake and you are dying. And there, on the shelf, is the antidote. Well, so long as that antidote remains in the vial and not in your bloodstream, it does you no good and you will most certainly die. Likewise, Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection does your soul no good so long as it remains outside of you. You must cast yourself on Christ. You must believe in Him. Unfortunately, though, there are not a few who attend Christian churches or who think themselves to be Christians 
but aren't. Now, don't misunderstand me when I say this. I'm not suggesting they're not nice people. They are. In fact, they, most people even do good, civically speaking. They pay their bills. They mow their grass. They don't beat their kids. But they're not actually trusting in Christ. Which means regardless of how, quote-unquote, good they appear to you and I, the truth is, if you are not trusting in Christ right now, then you are right now under the very wrath of God, and that one day you will stand before Him, and that gavel will drop, and you will be consigned to hell. This begs the question, why do people come to church then? If they don't believe the gospel, why do people read the Bible? Why do people espouse themselves to be religious? And I would venture to say that there's many reasons why this happens. Some people attend church because they like the music or the experience. Others, become, others come because of some kind of social connections, right? They, they want to be around like-minded people. Still other folks attend church because they just feel like it's the right thing to do. Maybe they want to have their kids exposed to a a good moral upbringing, whatever that means. Perhaps they attend church because they think that by doing so, they will somehow placate God. Still more people come to church because mom and dad force them, grandma and grandpa compel them, maybe some cute girl is twisting your arm. The fact of the matter is, people come to church for all sorts of reasons. But all of this and more is short-sighted. More than that, it's offensive to God and antithetical to the gospel. Because the gospel, and here to circle back, the gospel must be believed, not merely entertained. Again, the antidote must be injected into your bloodstream or the venom that is already there will, in fact, kill you. You must believe the gospel. So with the eternal significance of believing, the gospel, of believing in the gospel ringing in your ears, let me quickly give you four words that describe what it means to actually believe the gospel. And I think this is important because we live in a day and age in which words like faith or belief have been so maligned that we really don't know anymore what the Bible says. So let me linger here for a brief moment. To believe the gospel starts with renouncing. You must renounce your sin, tear up your resume, purge from your thinking any notion at all of your own goodness, and remove entirely from your heart and mind the idea that you are somehow able to come to God and be accepted by God because of you. That must be renounced completely. All self-righteousness must be renounced. Luther warns, As long as a man is persuaded that he can make even the smallest contribution to his salvation, he remains self-confident and does not utterly despair of himself. So my friend, you first must renounce all self-confidence. Second, you must receive. You must receive Christ and the good news of his gospel that he offers to you. So verse 1 says, right? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. So it's not enough. With both your hands, you have to peel off and throw off your own ugly self-righteousness. And then those same two hands, they have something else to do. With those same two hands, you must lift them empty to God and receive Christ. Just as a drowning man would receive the life preserver thrown at him, so you must receive Christ 
as he has offered to you. Then rely upon him. You will say with Scripture, not because you learned it at VBS, but because you believe it in your soul. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, Romans 7, 18. You will say, apart from me, I can, or apart from Christ, I can do nothing, John 15, 5. You will be resolved to put no confidence in the flesh, Philippians 3, 3. You will gladly acknowledge, though I was born dead in my trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1, I have been saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8. You lean into the promises of the gospel and joyfully confess that when it comes to your standing before God, your access to heaven, your sins being forgiven, you being pleasing in God's sight, all of that, all of it, it is entirely owing to Christ and Christ alone. That is what it means biblically to rely on Jesus. That's what faith is. Faith is not, I believe in unicorns. Faith is, I recognize I'm a wretch and I put all my hope in Jesus. That is faith. And then you spend the rest of your life resting on Jesus. Just as each and every one of us will retire to our beds tonight, snuggle in and rest our heads on our pillows so you will spend the rest of your days resting on your Savior. And you will do this because He redeemed you through the blood of His cross, and then three days later, He got up from the dead. And in doing so, He says to you today, my friend, I have done it all, so rest in Me. Hear me well, church. Renounce, receive, rely, and rest. This is what it means to believe the gospel. Do so today. Do so today knowing that Christ offers life to the dead. That is his promise to us all. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious morning that you have given to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Savior. We thank you that he has risen from the dead and that in him we have life. We pray that you would strengthen our weak faith. And for those who do not yet have faith, that your spirit would see fit to give them that faith even in these very moments. We pray that you would do all of these things, Father, in the name of Christ. And God's people said, Amen.